If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. This is the second of a two-part episode that I'm calling What Happened to Catholicism in America? In part one, which was episode 26, I mentioned some general cultural and demographic trends, as well as the various ways in which the American Catholic Church has not always responded to those trends and cultural movements as quickly and effectively as it could have or should have. In this episode, part two, I want to drill down more specifically on some threats to Catholicism, both internal and external. Now, threat is not too strong of a word because there are threats to the vitality and growth of Catholicism in America. Now, we might think of two types of threats, hostile and non-hostile. The difference is, I think, intentionality. So imagine a flood. The water is rising over the riverbank and it's threatening your house. For sure, it's a threat, but it's not of hostile intent. Yes, your house might get washed away, but the river isn't trying to wipe you out. It's just circumstances and you're unfortunately in the way of them. On the other hand, imagine bandits invade your home in the middle of the night. They've targeted you. They intend to kill you, to rape your women, cart off with your valuables and whatnot. That's a hostile threat. Now, the reason that I'm making this distinction is because I think that the threats to Catholicism in America range along a spectrum from non-hostile circumstances that the church is sort of in the way of, like your house in the way of the flood, to hostile actors, almost like those bandits, that would like nothing better than to destroy the church, but not before desecrating it and to satisfy their hatred of it. And I'm not going to take the time here, but I know that I can back up that assertion, not only with passages from the Bible and church history and magisterial teaching, but with the words of the hostile actors themselves. Because for centuries, the enemies of Christianity, and Catholic Christianity in particular, have been quite open about their motives and goals. But we'll leave all of that for some other time, because I want to get to the list of threats. But before I do, one more thing. Whenever we talk about threats to the church, Christians and Catholic Christians in particular, rightly point out that Jesus promised that the church is built upon the rock of Peter, that the gates or forces of hell itself cannot overcome it, and that Christ will win in the end. And listen, that's absolutely correct. But Jesus also promised times of trial including persecution, apostasy, and false teachers. So the fact that these threats will not be ultimately victorious doesn't mean that we won't have battles ahead. And while Jesus will win the war, 
we might lose a battle or two along the way. So, we need to keep our eyes sharp, our minds clear, our hearts pure, and follow St. Paul's advice in Ephesians chapter 6. Beginning with verse 10, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Okay. With all of that said, let's mention a dozen threats, with a mixture of hostile and non-hostile intentions among them, that have already severely impacted Catholicism in America over the last 50 years, and continue to do so. And I'm going to divide them into two categories, external threats and internal threats. So, here are six external threats that have brought Catholicism in America to where we are today. First, shifting worldviews. What's a worldview? Well, it's more than a belief system, a culture, or religion. It's, It's actually the framework inside of which your beliefs or your culture or your religion function. Beliefs, culture, and religion are like, um, like software programs like, or like apps. But your worldview is the operating system on which they run, like Apple OS or Microsoft Windows. Now, you and I might both believe in Christianity or Catholicism or patriotism or whatever. But if my worldview is an iPhone and yours is an Android, our Christianity or Catholicism or patriotism or whatever it is, is going to look and feel and behave a little bit differently uh, for each of us. And that makes worldviews hard to detect or discuss because they're always sort of running in the background. Now, the problem is that Catholicism arose and developed inside of a particular worldview. And inside that system, It's stable. It makes sense. It functions great. But over the last couple of centuries, and increasingly over the last half century, the operating system of American culture has evolved and fractured and multiplied into all sorts of competing worldviews. And for people with those worldviews, those different worldviews, running those different operating systems, Historic Catholicism either doesn't make sense at all, or it functions very differently for them. Now, the church has been through this over and over again over the last 20 centuries as it's spread around the globe and encountered other cultures. The good news is that Catholicism was actually formed in a more hostile environment with a more hostile worldview of the Greco-Roman world than ours today. And so Catholicism has the experience and the resources to react and adapt and persuade and convince and convert the worldviews around it. 
But that takes evangelists and missionaries with skill and time to engage those worldviews. And while all of this was going on over the last half century, the church has been coping with multiple threats from multiple directions. And truthfully, we're playing catch up. Now, if you're intrigued by this whole concept of worldviews, then check out consideringcatholicism.com, my new website, and the library of podcast episodes, articles, and videos there. For example, I've begun a series on this podcast called simply Worldviews, in which I catalog some of those that Catholicism is competing with in America. I unpack them one by one, I explain them, and give the Catholic response. Just search the website or the podcast archive for worldviews, and you'll find them. The second external threat is sexual morality, or shifts in sexual morality. Over the last half century, America and the West in general experienced a sexual revolution that radically altered how people live and the terms of their existence. Now, I'm going to do a follow-up episode soon on why sexual morality matters so much to Catholicism. But a short explanation is that our understanding of our bodies and the ways that we use them is integrally connected to our understanding of God. St. Pope John Paul II called it a theology of the body. Our souls and bodies, our spiritual and physical dimensions are woven together. We can't separate them. We act on spiritual truths in physical ways, and our actions in this physical world have spiritual consequences. And that's true whether it comes to acts of charity or justice or sexuality. Now, over the last 60 years, we've experienced a systematic deconstruction of the idea of the family as the basic unit of life. I mentioned this in the last episode, but I'm going to go a little bit further here. You see, this hasn't been just a phenomenon, a a non-hostile threat. I believe that at the highest levels of our culture, our civilization, academia and government, industry and entertainment, there has been an active attempt to deconstruct, discredit, and destroy the nuclear family. And this has fundamentally overturned our understanding of sexual morality, and thus the human person. And when the fundamental understanding of the human person, the human body, and human life is turned upside down, it affects our spirituality, our theology, our practice of our faith. It alters how we understand the incarnation and resurrection how we understand our responsibilities to God and the nature of sin and the purposes and function of the church. And the church has been slow or in some individual cases, even sadly to say, complicit in this transformation. And that has impacted the well-being and in some cases the nature of American Catholicism. The third external threat has come from the realm or the sphere of academia. Now, most academics write off anyone who's critical of academia as a cretin, just too stupid and not refined enough to understand the subtlety and nuance of academic thoughts. Now, a few of us had to read Jonathan Swift's book, Gulliver's Travels, back when we were in school. It's 
probably been banned by now. And we remember that way back in 1726, Swift epically goofed on academics as a bunch of doofuses floating on an island in the air, completely irrelevant to the concerns of ordinary people on the ground. Occasionally, they come up with a useful discovery or an invention or something, but otherwise it's best to largely ignore their silliness. But the problem is that over the last century or so, academia has been ground zero for a number of mind viruses that have spread to infect American civilization. So what are these mind viruses? Well, not genuine science or critical thinking. We've had science and critical thinking for thousands of years. It's just that our knowledge base has gotten exponentially bigger over time. No, the mind viruses that I'm talking about are deconstructive and destructive. So Marxism, critical theory, the unraveling of epistemology, and various forms of ontological and moral relativism. These are toxins in our intellectual water supply, building up in our systems, causing cancers and degenerative diseases in our civilization. And they're diametrically opposed to the principles of Catholicism. And American children, from kindergarten to college, have been eating the fruit of these poison trees for 50 or 60 years. It's no wonder that Catholicism seems odd and unpalatable to them. Again, the church has the experience and resources to react, but it's been slow and ineffective in its response for a variety of reasons. Some of them I'll get to in the list of internal threats in a few minutes. The fourth external threat is what I'm going to call the narrative. You see, as people, we process events by applying narrative templates to them. So we have these story templates in our heads, and we lay them over the data to give it organization to make sense of it. They all have plot lines with good guys and bad guys. Well, when you've been told nonstop from the time that you started school, this whole narrative mythology about how evil Catholicism and the Catholic Church is, that it caused the Dark Ages, that it burned Galileo at the stake, and it tortured the Native Americans to steal their gold, and that the Vatican is full of basements with dark secrets like in the Da Vinci Code, or that the Catholic Church wants to turn American women into breeders with red cloaks and white hats like in The Handmaiden's Tale. By the way, none of what I just said is true. Well, if you've been told that your whole life, then the Catholic Church fits rather neatly into the villain's role in the secular cultural narrative. And for Catholics and Catholic evangelists, that's a lot of mythology to dispel and a lot of momentum to overcome. You know, it only takes 30 seconds for someone to repeat a slanderous story about the church. And it takes 10 or 20 times as long to try and explain why, you know, the story is not only wrong, but ridiculous. But of course, no one wants to listen to that longer explanation. And this secular narrative has been spread so widely, not only by the schools, but by Hollywood and the news media, that it takes a lot of persuasion to get most Americans to take an honest and objective look at Catholicism. And that has impacted our ability to tell our story. A lot of us are working hard to counter that narrative, like here at Considering Catholicism, but we are few and don't have the platforms that the enemies of the church do. 
So pray for us. The fifth external threat is big government. Now, I know this is a whole giant cannon of worms, so let me just touch on it briefly. In the early 20th century, government began proactively filling the roles that religion previously had in American life. So, providing charitable services to the poor, the moral education of children, not just teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic, but moral formation, the organization of communities, the definition of the family, etc. Faith began to take a backseat to government programs. And more and more of American life began to fall under the government's purview and regulation. Over the course of the 20th century, the role of government expanded like a gas to fill all the nooks and crannies in our lives and minds and culture and families and homes. And American government has never had a comfortable relationship with Catholicism. Now, if you're interested in the history of American Catholicism, I produced a 10-episode documentary about it called American Pilgrimages for the Lakeshore Academy for the New Evangelization. You can find it on the ConsideringCatholicism.com website. But as government began to replace the church as the organizing influence on American life, the church became relegated to the sidelines and corners and cul-de-sacs of our culture. Churches have permission from the government at the moment to worship on Sunday. But beyond that, the church's scope in American life has been clipped and controlled. In parts of Canada, for example, it's illegal for a pastor to preach a homily that contradicts the government's LGBTQ doctrines. It feels like some American government officials would love to follow Canada's lead. So, government is a big powerful external threat sort of lurking on the church's perimeter. We'll be talking more about this in future episodes, I'm sure. And the last external threat I want to mention are actual avowed enemies of the church. Now, this isn't conjecture or speculation. There have always been enemies who hate Christianity, hate Catholic Christianity, and hate the Catholic church. Over the centuries, there have been Freemasons and Marxists and radical atheists and secularists and various splinters of occult and New Age groups. I'm being totally serious and completely biblical when I say that we fight against demonic powers and principalities, the spirit of Antichrist in the world. Now, not all of our opponents or everyone who disagrees with us falls into this category, of course. But. Maybe some do. And they have worked actively, sometimes openly and sometimes in secret, to oppose and undermine and twist and deface the church. They hate Christ, they hate Our Lady, and they hate the ship of Peter. And they will rage against it until he returns to bring the final justice. But Our Lady brought the child that crushes the serpent's head. And St. Joseph is the terror of demons because he represents and defended everything that they hate. And we have St. Michael, who defends us in battle against Satan. So we are not alone in this fight, but we do need to rely on the help that heaven offers. So that's a half dozen external threats, some circumstantial and some with hostile intent, 
that have threatened American Catholicism over the last 50 or 60 years and are at least partly responsible for the church in America being where it is at the moment. But not all the threats are outside the walls. Some come from within American Catholicism itself. Now, I'm not going to go into much detail about these. As a Catholic and as an employee of the Catholic Church, I want to be, I should be, I must be charitable to my brothers and sisters. To assume the best about them and to guard my tongue against slander. That's what I would want them to do for me because God knows I am a sinner. The last thing that I want to be is the Pharisee in Jesus' parable who says, you know, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner over there. So I'm going to be cautious and conscientious and as charitable as possible in my criticism. All that being said, these are, I think, six internal threats to Catholicism in America, which have kind of landed us where we are today. The first is the demographic math. The bottom line is that we haven't been reproducing at a replacement rate. To maintain the church, much less grow it, we need to propagate the faith to the next generation in three ways. First, the good old-fashioned way, biological reproduction. Second, we have to retain those kids, not let them drift away from the faith after confirmation. And finally, we need to bring new people into the church through evangelization. And on all those points, our metrics have been terrible since around 1970. I went through all those dismal numbers in the last episode. And as the baby boom generation passes, there will be fewer people at mass and less money in the offertory. The second internal threat is our own apathy and ignorance. Now, to be clear, many American Catholics are passionate, devoted, knowledgeable, and curious to learn more about their faith like all of you who are listening. But not everyone is. Not everyone is listening. Many of us just coast along, sort of minimally engaged and not curious enough to learn more about our faith. Again, listen to the last episode and the dismal statistics about mass attendance, participation in ministry, or knowledge of and agreement with the teachings of the church. We can talk all day long about external threats, but when half of American Catholics are checked out and refuse to man the walls, it's tough to defend the castle and forget sallying forth to take new ground. The third internal threat is what we might call consumerism, the notion that the church is a vendor and we're its customers. Too many assume that parishes are like stores that exist to offer us services tailored to our tastes on our terms. And so, some assert that as our tastes, beliefs, and lifestyles change, our parishes ought to adapt to better accommodate or accompany us in those changes. So for years, this dynamic played out in what we might call the worship wars over liturgical styles and music. Now, it's shifted to LGBTQ issues with the assumption that the church's teachings have to keep up with our shifting beliefs. Consumerism corrodes the fundamental mission of the church and our mission as Christians, to bend our knee to Christ and to proclaim the kingdom of God against the kingdoms of man. The fourth internal threat is 
corruption within the church. Now, look, this is nothing new. There's always been corruption. One of the first 12 apostles was corrupted for 30 pieces of silver. The New Testament is full of stories and warnings of corrupt church leaders. Church history is riddled with corrupt priests and bishops and even a few popes. Of course, the church isn't unique. History is full of plenty of corrupt soldiers and mayors and kings and emperors. Let's be honest. The church recruits from among the human race, and some bad apples get into the basket. Other apples start to rot in the box. That's not an excuse. It's just an honest explanation. Corruption in the church is a problem, but the bigger problem is how we deal with it. When corruption is disguised, excused, even covered for or colluded with, well, that's the problem. How many church officials knew about Cardinal McCarrick and did nothing, even collaborated with him because they were, or are, just as corrupt themselves? You see, we still don't have those answers. And how many other McCarricks are there out there? The erosion of trust and the loss of credibility is perhaps more of a threat than the actual corrupt acts themselves. Pray for our bishops because they have a lot of work to do. The fifth internal threat is infiltration by our enemies. In the list of external threats, I mentioned those ideologies and organizations that hate the Catholic Church and want to see it undone. Question. Is it possible that some of them have slipped spies into the camp? Now, I know this makes me sound like a tinfoil hat conspiracy nut, but I honestly believe that over the last half century, some wolves have crept into the flock wearing sheep's clothing. I'm not accusing anyone in particular, but I do know that the apostles warned us that this would happen, and that it has happened from time to time over the centuries and that there are organizations in the world today that actively attempt to insert agents into the church. In communist countries, a few of which I have visited, it's well known that government intelligence agencies have penetrated churches and church leadership. Who, where, when? Look, I admit that I have no proof that the church in America has been penetrated by political or ideological or spiritual enemies, or to what extent. But I don't doubt that it has happened. Jesus said, by their fruits, you shall know them. And the final internal threat that I want to mention is heresy driven by sexual immorality. Earlier, I mentioned shifting sexual morality as an external threat. It's inevitable that the sexual morality of the broader culture will influence Christians. It always has. Christians have always committed sexual sins and hopefully have sought reconciliation with God through repentance and the sacrament of confession. Look, there is nothing new about promiscuity or even homosexual acts. Those are part of the sad and somewhat boring history of fallen humanity. What is new are those in the church seeking to redefine humanity with a new theology being built to serve and sacramentalize our ancient lusts. Rewriting Christian doctrines to call our sins virtues and then demanding that God and the church bless and honor them is sacrilegious and really arrogant. 
We're contorting our understanding of God and his word to suit our demands, to squeeze them into a new worldview. And so, while sexual sins themselves are sort of boring and ordinary, our theological rationalization of them is amounting to the first great heresy of the 21st century. Our bishops and the Holy Father need to put this down as forcefully as earlier popes and councils put down the Arian or Gnostic heresies. Now, looking back at this list, none of these threats, external or internal, will destroy the church. We know how this story ends. Christ returns and sets things right. But we also know that along the way, there are going to be times of hardship and trial, persecutions and apostasies. And yet, God will also send saints and revivals. It has been, as G.K. Chesterton said, one whirling adventure, and it will continue to be so. So, we need to be sober, alert, prayerful, and do our jobs. Well, this episode is getting pretty long, so I'm going to wrap up this two-part episode. We've touched a lot of bases, and I'm sure that we'll visit some of them again and spend more time exploring these topics. If you go to consideringcatholicism.com and subscribe to the newsletter, you'll be able to keep up with future podcasts, articles, and videos about them. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts, and please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think, greg at consideringcatholicism.com.